0: Hello and welcome to In Conversation with the monthly podcast series brought to you by the team that produced the Global Cosmetics Newsfeed. 2023's theme is circular cosmetics. This month's topic is sun care, and I'm your host, Siobhan Murphy. It is estimated that currently somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 tons of sunscreen enters the world's seas each year. This devastates the coral reefs affects the fertility of marine life, which ultimately has a negative impact on human health. How can the cosmetics industry reformulate sun care to do better for people and planet? To help me answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce this month's panel. Welcome back to Anita Walford, Global Marketing and Technical Director, Beauty and Personal Care at Univar Solutions, and Mallory Huron, senior strategist, beauty and wellness at Fashion Snoops. Joining us for the first time, Sarah Dudley, CEO of The Sunscreen Company, and Alard Marks, Aesthetics Founder, CEO. Mallory, let's start with you. What are the consumer challenges and where are the opportunities that Fashion Snoop have been tracking for circular sun care products?
1: Sure, so this is a super exciting category that is uh, an area we love to track at Fashion Snoops. We know that sun care is continuing to grow exponentially as a market, as consumers are increasingly learning about the importance of daily um, consistent sun protection to protect the health of their skin. We're seeing um, in the US days like National Sunscreen Day, which is made uh, in late May, serve as an annual event for sun brands to expand consumer education, and this new generation of skin intelligent consumers are really gravitating to social media to learn and share sun care tips and favorite products. On TikTok, hashtag SunTalk has turned sun care into a social media phenomenon, along with hashtag Lizard Time. Which, if you're not familiar with Lizard Time, it was a social media trend about spending more time in the sun. Um, And actually in our recent solar energy beauty shift, we highlighted how sunscreens are helping us engage with the sun more, but safely. So I think um, there's a lot of opportunity in terms of consumer interest and uh, the the more educated consumers that we um, are experiencing now in the beauty industry certainly want to know that their products not only perform well, but are going to of course have a zero impact on the environment and therein lies the challenge. I think, first of all, there's a real need uh, for consumers for more convenient forms. Uh, Sunscreen, historically, you know, it has been maligned as messy, goopy, you know, not the most pleasing texture, of course. Now with this sun care revolution, we're experiencing such a change in better textures, better formats, and we're seeing things like stick forms. Uh, We love a brand from South Korea whose vegan Blackberry Complex Multi Sun Bomb has Great natural botanicals and a serum core um, to deliver skincare benefits along with a convenient uh, format. And of course, Attitude is another brand we love. We just saw them at CasaProf um, Bologna. Um, and their amazing stick form sunscreens also have biodegradable packaging on the outside. Uh, in terms of different formats, we're also seeing uh, suncare powders, which had kind of a, a rocky start, but they're really growing. Uh, they're a new Statistic that I saw recently is that the global uh, care powder product market is expected to expand uh, massively in the coming years. So brands like Larkley, which are kind of at the forefront of that movement, are going to start to become uh, more prevalent as powder sunscreen, you know, which are usually usually mineral based are seen as a more eco-friendly way. Uh, To protect your skin, we're also, of course, seeing the need for sensorial products. We're seeing a lot of vegan milks, for example, in um, eco friendly sunscreen formulations that are going to give consumers this very indulgent, you know, sensorial tactile feel um, while also, you know, delivering the protection and delivering on sustainability credentials as well. And then lastly, um, I think perhaps the most important challenge with consumers um, for sun care is the need for trust and efficacy. This was really first brought to light a few years ago with a class action lawsuit against Honest Beauty when consumers were calling out that natural sunscreen for not delivering on the amount of protection. And we're actually recently seeing a brand comeback from this sort of crisis. Craze Beauty recently relaunched its best selling sunscreen, The Beat the Sun. A few years ago, it was recalled due to um, production issues that were happening and um, you know, false claims. And so they spent two years on development and they've also spent a massive amount of time engaging with their following, engaging with their consumer base to really regain that trust, show the results, show the science, show the research and prove to consumers that this is a natural sunscreen that you really can trust.
0: And talking about textures, Anita, what are the consumer challenges, and where are the opportunities for Univar solutions?
2: Hi, Shaban. Thanks for that question. You know, I think from a consumer challenge standpoint, I was listening to Mallory. Um, mineral versus chemical sunscreen is a big challenge. Just the educational piece of people understanding what's the difference. Um, I think there's a lack of knowledge and. I was just reading some stats from Mentel that said about sixty-four percent of consumers think that they don't even know the difference. So they need they need help. They have difficulties just trying to understand what a sunscreen can do for you and which one is which. So if we can start with that, um, we can help them understand what's a great mineral one and how difficult it can be to formulate mineral sunscreens into nice textures that are agreeable to put on. Uh, I think somebody said that, you know, the best sunscreen is the one that you use, right? So if we can convince them that great textures are amazing. Uh, One of the things I saw recently um, was a product from. From a brand that was making from vacation I think it's called that they basically had a whipped cream textured sunscreen which is awesome that's really cool it's fun it's innovative and it's made with eco-friendly propellants so you're checking the box on the sustainability piece Um, and if people are using it and they're applying it and they're doing it every two hours like they should, um, then I think we we have something fun. From, from our standpoint, I think we're looking at making more sticks. So that's great to hear that we're on trend. Thank you, Mallory, for that validation. Uh, we're also looking at making more in general, solid textures and not necessarily a stick form, but things that can be transported easily. So we have a couple of putties um, from a sunscreen standpoint. We are adding SPF to a lot of our skincare products as well um, because that skin intelligent consumer is, is everywhere as we continue to blur the lines and make more hybrid products.
0: And at the sunscreen company, Sara?
3: Yeah, it's so funny. I always say that sunscreens, you know, we do skincare and obviously sunscreen is our main focus. And we've been doing sunscreen for 15 years. And I've always said that sunscreen is the most challenging category because it's like an iceberg, right? You have the 10% that is sort of appreciable to customers, right? The 10% that they care about. So texture, SPF, very vaguely like what are the ingredients? They'll say mineral, non mineral. Um, organic, inorganic. So that's the 10% that's appreciated by the customer. But as a company or, or as a formulator, you know, we need to manage the 90% that's under the water that is not appreciated by a customer. And at the sunscreen company, we have a very specific focus, right? We have physicians as co-founders, our chemists is our partner, and we focus on what we call ill particles. So that does include mineral sunscreen, so zinc and titanium. It could include, you know, organic chemicals like the tin but basically they're large particles so over 500 Daltons uh, and the idea is that they don't permeate into the body and we think that's a huge sustainability measure because when you talk about permeation you know like the human body but then also when we look at our aquatic systems the whole life chain cycle when you have that as your litmus test or your threshold which is what we maintain It sets a whole new level for formulations A very specific criteria. It does set a very challenging kind of formulation guideline. as typically we're, you know, primarily North American. So for us, that means zinc oxide is our primary filter that we work with, but because we also focus so much on UVA, which I think is still not really appreciated by customers. It's not on the bottle in a meaningful way, especially not in North America. I mean, UVA is such an important impact on human health, you know, in terms of skin cancer. And then also we talk about the vanity, things like aesthetics, skin aging. It's such a huge factor that's not well understood by the customer. But from our point of view and our expertise, you know, we formulate with large concentrations of zinc oxide. So up to 25% is generally where we work with all of our formulas you know sunscreen doesn't work if it stays in the bottle so like what everyone said right textures aesthetics that's so hugely important it's not just a—it it is a compliance issue right it doesn't work if it stays in the bottle so it has to be something that someone loves to wear every single day we kind of build the sugar into the spoonful of medicine is our sort of philosophy
0: and how about for your brand aesthetics allowed?
3: Well, I,
4: I'm, I'm glad a lot of the issues have been raised by, by three ladies who just spoke because there is a big distinction between North America and Europe, of course, because um, as far as I know, North America hasn't approved any new um, sunscreen uh, filters, any sun filters for 14 or 15 years. And um, so that hence that the market is is orientated towards zinc oxide predominantly. Uh, in Europe, there is much more attention to, to UVA, and uh, we have a whole generation of filters which are not used in the US. So that that's one big distinction. The other one that always concerns me is that we talk about the word organic and natural quite loosely, actually, because zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are made in the same factories as the chemical sun filters. They're not they're not naturally harvested or or mined. They're made in the same factories with the same manufacturers. So the distinction between mineral and chemical because of their functionality and the fact that the mineral ones reflects the light and the so-called chemical sun filters absorb the light is, is actually a, a weird distinction because they're both chemicals you know they're both made in the same factories you and i are chemicals so it's a bit of a misnomer and then moving on the point of, of biodegradability and uh i always have a concern about about that word because things can degrade, disperse, dissolve in the ocean, and still do harm. So biodegradability is a red herring. It really is. And uh, it, it really worries me that that is still a criterion for for products. And that ties in with the fact that there is no global standard for anything to do with ocean-safe products. There's no global standard for reef-safe claims, reef-friendly claims. And in fact, in the U.S., there have now been a couple of... Um, class action suits against companies making refriendly friendly claims without any substantiation. I think this is all moving in the right direction, I have to say, and, and the bans on certain ingredients is, is a great move in the right direction. And then when it comes to circularity, we've got the worldwide exclusive license for a patented ingredient which is derived from red seaweed, uh, which we've used only in a high-end cream because the extraction cost is still so high. But that's, that's a marvellous uh, development and, uh, and one which I'm, I'm really proud of housed in the Ethic brand. So there's some great early buds and signs of moving in the right direction. The consumer is being left behind and is, is uninformed or misinformed by some of the words that are being used, but we're moving in the right direction and I'm full of hope.
0: And thinking about minerals versus chemicals, Mallory, what are the technical challenges and where are the opportunities that Fashion Snoop have been tracking for circular sun care products?
1: So within the technical challenges for uh, sustainable sun care, we're really seeing the same challenge, although of course there are some, Particular uh, challenges for suncare that I'm going to get into in a moment, but we're seeing the same challenges as we see for other sustainable skincare products. Which right now, so we've we've had this natural movement for so many years now, and the very first focus of this movement was okay, 100% all natural. We're going to market our products as a uh, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99.9% all natural origin, and that aspect of being completely all natural was for the first wave of this sustainability movement we've tracked recently, that was the first focus. And then we moved into uh, the packaging discussion, which was, of course, was spurred on by, mainly by huge concerns for the ocean, the haunting images of sea life being trapped in uh, straws and water bottles. And so we've now seen the whole post-recycled plastic movement pick up and consumers become keenly aware of what their products are packaged in. But now I think this era is, and this is very pertinent for sun care. W- the the challenge technically is how to marry the the formulation and the product in a way that delivers a satisfying product texture and experience, but houses that experience uh, within packaging that is um, fully environmentally friendly. And and for, fully environmentally friendly, you know, d- does not need to mean zero waste, uh, can you know, even if it's just separate to recycle, recyclable components, you know, some perhaps aspects of the packaging that will safely biodegrade. And I think the point about safely biodegrading is a good one because um, it's true that there is a lot of misinformation with biodegradability, but things that are, sa- are compost friendly, for example, I think is Um, another certification we're seeing grow. But I think the technical challenge is to marry those two uh, needs together and to create that really satisfying um, experience for the consumer. I saw recently in an article that, uh, you know, uh, a research team of Italians and Americans, I think Tortini et al., they did a review of these sorts of challenges and basically they found that also physical UV filters and balancing these natural physical UV filters with that sort of tactile, pleasant experience was also a huge, uh, huge adoption factor for consumers. You know, a formulation may be, you know, environmentally extremely good, but it might not deliver on the consumer experience. So I think certainly from a textural standpoint, formulating those textures is also really important.
0: And how about universal solutions, Arnita?
2: That's a great question. Um, I think democratizing formulation as a whole is a big technical challenge. You have to have the time to produce a good sun care product. The product, you know, the process of doing sun care versus skin or hair um, is more lengthy. It takes a lot of time and years to research, to develop lots of testing, multiple rounds of testing to ensure your quality and the safety of the product is good. And when I say democratize, not only from a time constraint issue, but you know not everyone can afford it you have to be able to be able to spend that time and then test your product and testing is expensive so if you don't have those resources you can't really move into the sun care space and you can't really put out products that consumers believe in and that are going to give you a safe and efficacious result from our side you know we we work on a global scale we are really holding the hands of a lot of brands at this point, whether that's um, doing some of that SPF testing for them, whether that is helping them speed up their time to market with doing some formulation work for them, and then also advising and consulting on the regulatory issues. I mean, navigating regulatory, as Alar mentioned, you know, the, the FDA regulations in the US versus what's available in Europe versus what's available in Asia are drastically different. And a lot of these smaller brands have no idea. They're really discovering and uncovering the process as they go. So they really need some some support with that. And then last but not least, I think if we look at all of the different formats um, that are on the market today, the consumer experience, as Mallory mentioned, is really important. But it's also important to be able to deliver a product that is efficacious, that can easily be transformed and transported, and also that Ultimately, that product, you can put it on, you don't have a white cast all over your skin, it went in easily, and you're ready to reapply it at the end. And unfortunately, that type of formulation takes talent. It's not just poof, we can, you know, anybody can formulate a sunscreen really easily. So I think that technical challenge as a whole is something we as an industry need to tackle through education and also through inventing basically new testing um, methods and and new formats.
0: Democratising sun care, Sarah, is that something that happens at the sunscreen company?
3: Yeah, so at the sunscreen company, I mean, I liked what Mallory was saying about, you know, the first wave of sustainability, a lot of focus was on naturally derived ingredients. And, you know, as you know, we've been around for 15 years, essentially working mostly on mineral sun care, highly aesthetic facial sunscreens, highly protective in the UVA range. So for us, you know, that's always been technically challenging. And when we were kind of in that phase where there was a lot of focus on naturally derived ingredients. I mean, I'm not anti-naturally derived ingredients, but we work with pretty specific Um, technical challenges, so you can't be painted into a sort of formulations corner, right? It's nice to have as much range in your formulations toolkit to be able to explore all the and formats that people want, right? Our goal has always been to take, you know, mineral sunscreens and put them in formats that people love. So we have a sunscreen that is the consistency of a serum, but it's 25% zinc. We have one that is a lip balm that blends to be clear. Uh, We have one that is a fluid oil, though... anything that you would see in like the sort of conventional organic chemical um, format uh, we've always tried to replicate in the mineral format that's something that's really important to us you know to give people the breadth of experience that they're looking for and the application that they're looking for that's really you know we've gone a little bit more breadth in terms of formulation um, tools to be able to explore that and I think that just serves the public really well and in terms of things like inclusivity of You know, everyone being able to use the sunscreen that they want specifically for us mineral sunscreens, you know, we formulate one that is absolutely transparent on all skin tones, 25%, you know, can be blended in on a Fitzpatrick skin type six with no issue, right? And I think that's important to show that. Um, that 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 is possible, that we're not limited by that. If you think about it, mineral sunscreens have been around in popularity since the 90s, but really have sort of gone more popular within the past 20 years. So less time than, you know, the organic uh, chemicals here in North America. But we're really kind of in our zone now. We're in our lane of being able to give all the options that people are looking for. So it's kind of breaching the technical challenges of it. And now we should be able to Give people what they want, right? There's if there's sort of a will and a way to be able to explore those textures and um, deliver on those capabilities. It's it is possible if a company wants it, right? I think we have to move beyond those kind of customer briefs um, and really make sure that we're covering that ninety percent that I talked about before in terms of the whole experience of a sunscreen.
0: And for you, Alug, what are the technical challenges and where are the opportunities at aesthetics?
4: Our brand uses um, chemical sun filters, uh, the ones that are classified as such, which the chemists call organic products, but of course, that's a totally different meaning to the word organic than the consumer understands. So we've overcome those challenges. We've got a very smooth product that doesn't sting the eyes, which spreads easily, which uh, absorbs into the upper layer of the skin very well and, and affords great protection, which we've had proved to us over time and time again with water sports professionals are using it for hours and hours on end, uh, reapplying, hopefully, uh, as often as we recommend. <laughs> but, uh, so we've, we've overcome some of those obstacles in terms of the, the opportunities. Um, we're, we're really excited about uh, our seaweed ingredient, and um, we now have to find ways of having this truly vegan, truly organic ingredient and finding ways of uh, extracting it and purifying it at a, at a lower economic cost so that we can use it uh, more readily in, uh, in our products. So that's the, that's the next challenge for us.
0: And thinking about organics, Madhuri, what are the environmental challenges and where are the opportunities that Fashion Snoop have been tracking for Sun Care products?
1: This is um, a really dynamic area that we're tracking. Ingredients um, are a huge factor in all of our beauty products. Um, Hero ingredients can sort of make or break a a product nowadays. And I think um, actually starting out with the topic of ingredients in terms of environmental challenges i think for circular sun care products responsible and common sense ingredient sourcing is going to be crucial uh, to establishing this next generation of circular sun care there's a recent example i saw of uh, the brand surf dirt whose sunscreen uh, contains beeswax so it can't be marketed as uh, vegan but the reason they source this beeswax they source it from a community Of completely regenerative holistic beehives. Um, It supports the local farmers, it supports the local bee community, so it essentially is doing a vast amount of good through this ingredient, Um, and it's being included despite not being able to stick that vegan label on it that so many consumers have become, you know, like drones to try and find this vegan stamp on every single thing, but they specifically don't include it so that they can ultimately create a product that's going to benefit Um, and enrich the world uh, ultimately through their sourcing Um, aside from the ethical uh, issues of ingredient sourcing for circular sun care we also are seeing biotech um, grow massively Uh, biotechnology has been just like the common the common refrain that we keep coming back to um, at beauty and wildness at fs uh, because we really see it as this like magic solution for so many environmental issues posed uh, to the beauty and wellness industry. So using the marriage of nature and science to be able to create um, ingredients previously found in nature, but create them in a lab, ferment them, um, recreate them, create a biomimetic alternative to them so that, you know, instead of sourcing some 100% natural, uh, you know, compound from a flower that only grows in this one area and over-harvesting it is going to devastate the community, Uh, Let's take that flower and also unlock its properties uh, in a a safe lab setting so that we don't have to disturb and deplete the environment uh, for the benefits of a skincare product. And so ingredient sourcing is is one component that we see. But also, of course, um, the the greenwashing conversation is really continuing to be a concern. Uh, What Allard mentioned earlier about the words that we loosely throw around um, when describing products organic green, you know, environmentally safe, you know, environmentally friendly, you know, we all know that by this point words, you know, those words have very little meaning. And actually a 2020 uh, study from the European Commission found that 53.3% of these claims were vague, misleading, or unfounded. And 40% of those were actually completely false or unstantiated. So There's a a new, uh, I read a new green claims directive that uh, is trying to make these specific claims, um, things like, you know, made with post-recycled plastic or, you know, ocean friendly, which has become a big one, as was mentioned earlier, um, that they have to be, you know, verified really with research, with science, with, you know, real credentials. But, you know, this greenwashing is really continuing to do more harm than good because even though we in the beauty industry think like, you know, are, are more savvy to what is truly organic, truly green, truly, you know, cruelty-free and not the average consumer is just faced with a barrage of these labels. Every time they walk into a store and see them, they don't know who's lying and who isn't. And conversely, um, there were also seeing this new phenomenon of green hushing that I saw the other day. And green hushing is actually now the backlash to green where wherein A brand has sustainability credentials that are good, but they are hesitant to talk about them and promote them for fear that uh, consumers are going to find some fault with them and rip them apart. So I think we just need to establish some um, agreed upon regulations in the language we use to describe natural products. And there needs to be a concerted effort uh, among brands to really educate consumers, um, you know, in order to. You know help them understand what products they're buying which products are actually good for the environment
0: what are the environmental challenges for universal solutions are anita
1: i think the
2: circular sun care environmental challenge stems with education a lot of it is ingredient led, of course but it stems with education if we as an industry better educate the consumer to make the right choices, then they will in turn not have this fear of doing harm to the environment. A recent study I saw, um, I think it was on Euro Monitor, talked about people being concerned that using sunscreen is harmful to the environment. So the fact that, that consumers are still asking the question, is it worse for me to use this sunscreen or to have skin cancer is a problem. And I think we need to attack that with education, informing them, making some very clear distinctions with language, because language really does matter. In this case, Alar has mentioned multiple times how consumers don't know the difference between organic filters and chemical filters, or what organic really means. And is that organic, organic, or are we just talking about mineral filters? So we are using confusing internal, if you will, um, internal industry language, and we need to be more clear with our external communication to consumers. And I think brands have to, to own it, you know, talk about the great things they're doing, be very forward in their uh, environmental um, RSE policies um, and, and just let the consumer know what they're doing. If they are using actual certified organic products, if they are using or have a percent naturality in their formulation, why is it important for the environment? And then come back to the circularity piece. So that's just the formulation, but let's talk about your packaging let's talk about your formulation process you know was it water intensive was it labor intensive was it just in general energy heavy what have you done to decrease that piece and then look at the full cycle is your is your product now recyclable can it really and truly be broken down is it just going into the ocean etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think we have to communicate better educate more and hopefully some of these challenges will disappear as people can make better informed decisions
0: is education
3: key at the sunscreen company sarah yeah absolutely at the sunscreen company i mean a huge part of what we feel is our sort of you know task with our scientific founders and expert panel is education and i mean we don't consider ourselves environmental we certainly try and keep on top of the latest research and i think it is an emerging science and there's so much research that is coming up every day so you know we always focus really on the human health impact but certainly we don't live we live on this planet right so we do consider it important to look to see what is the best Uh, most recent available data on things like reef safety and environmental sort of contamination of, especially with UV filters. So, you know, looking at the organic chemical and that's from the chemistry point of view, not the environmental or agriculture point of view, So not organic vegetables, but organic chemistry. We're not against all organic filters by any stretch of the means, right? So like, for example, the tinosaurbs are considered organic chemicals, uh, but they're generally large in size. So we don't worry about permeation for them, you know, looking at them um, versus like the ones that we are restricted to in North America. and. We're and. we're seeing things like reef safety, uh, reef sciences. Um, You know, a lot of what we are concerned with is things like permeation, for example, oxybenzone, right? A very small particle easily absorbs into the body. There was the NIH study, uh, I think 10 years now ago, that shows 98% of the 2,000 people studied had it in their body. And then we have a physician on our, our expert panel who is a fetal maternal health specialist with endocrinology. Um, looking at the risk to children, unborn children, youth, and a lot of the same sort of permeation is a play for things like oxyben. So, small particle permeates. That means that when it's used ubiquitously, like in sunscreens, which I think it has tapered off now because of some of the sort of drawback on the industry level. When it's used ubiquitously, it's not only necessarily in people's bodies or water systems, but also like uh, in the food um, environment, you know, reefs as well. So it's one of those things that permeates everywhere when it's used in that way. And it's the trifecta of like the small particle. So we look at all of that. We try and keep on top of it. And yeah, and advocate for, you know, things that are, like we said, good for the environment as best as we can, as it is emerging, you know. As more details emerge keep on top of that and then tie that into the human health as well
0: termination allowed. is that important at aesthetics
4: uh yeah the major challenge is that there's no standard or, or regulation around the reef safe claims and as far as we're concerned the, the only thing that counts is scientific evidence that your product doesn't harm the reef which is what we have and that's that's our that patent for our sunscreen which we've just vigorously defended Successfully against an attack by Bayersdorf, the owners of Nivea, um, and one on appeal after nine years. There has to be a standard for that, and there has to be some regulation around those those claims of reef safety. It's not enough to remove a couple of ingredients that have been identified as being harmful. Lots of other ingredients are harmful too. It can be the the, the fillers, the thickeners, the emulsifiers, the fragrances, the preservatives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I mean. Unless and until people have tested their entire formula with reputable scientists using a, a verified protocol, test protocol, they shouldn't be making these claims. So that's that's the first thing um, as a challenge. Um, as far as we're concerned, that's what we've done, and that's how we we got our product passed, and that's how we got our patent. In terms of the in terms of the consumer, absolutely right. The product has to feel right. It has to feel good. Uh, it has to be easy to use. And um, that's, that's the future, I think. But it, it's, it really is controlling those words and making sure that everybody uses them the same way and that there is scientific evidence to back up claims.
0: And who should be responsible, Mallory? What are the regulatory challenges and where are the opportunities that fashion sweeps have been tracking for sun care products?
1: So, I mean, it's certainly this is one of the core questions when talking about sun care is regulation. Sun care globally is one of the most inconsistently regulated beauty categories. Each country has different standards and regulations, um, and they are so complex, even just going down. Uh, the rabbit hole uh, for for this question what was mind-boggling even in addition to what I already knew of sun care regulations internationally I mean of course, speaking at the uh, the low end of the regulation spectrum is of course the, the U.S where many cosmetic most cosmetics are still regulated under the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and so you know we certainly, We have the low end of um, high end regulation moving up to the United Kingdom and the European Union. um, They have a bit more um, a bit more finesse and strident standards. Certainly, you know, sunscreens need to show they're effective against UVA UVB rays, having a low, medium, high or very high. Some protection factor and other other additional regulations and what you can say in terms of claims. Um, you know, move, moving that bar up, and then of course we get to countries like South Korea and Japan, where the um, the focus becomes with regulations uh, from from the ground up in terms of you must have special licenses ju- at every stage to be able to develop package bottle the sunscreens. Everything must be highly regulated. Not only in terms of what the product is claiming and what the formulation is in terms of safety and efficacy, but also making sure that it is clinical, that it is science-backed at every stage, and then um, moving up to Australia, who has extremely high um, regulatory guidelines for sunscreens. You know, they they really have um, really have expanded uh, the, the global standard for what sunscreen regulation should be. Not only in terms of the product itself, but how it can be marketed to consumers. And I think um, brand go-to skincare, when they launched their Nifty 50 sunscreen, I think this was a year or so ago, I um, they had a really great social media campaign that was teaching consumers about what these regulations are and showing them through how they're promoting the product, what they're not allowed to say about it, which is a super interesting um, way of very sneakily educating consumers while also getting them to think about the types of regulations that we should have as standard across the board uh, across the globe i mean we're all you know even depending on environments of course you know some places get more more sun than less but we're all of course um vulnerable to the sun's rays even on a cloudy day and um as we move into a new era where climate change and and increasingly strong UVA, UVB rays are going to uh, massively challenge human biology. Sunscreen really is a vital product for humans to be able to live in this new environmental reality. So there has to be better cooperation on the international scale of what we're going to allow to be called sunscreen.
0: And for your company, Arnita, Univar Solutions, what are the regulatory challenges?
2: So as a global ingredient distributor, you know, we, our challenge is really to support our principals with the ingredients that they are trying to put on the market. For example, uh, DSM in the US, recently we helped campaign with them on Capitol Hill as they were trying to get a PPE bill passed for sunscreen as personal protection um, equipment. Because as Mallory said, You know, she's got some great insights. Um, The human body is about to be extremely challenged with the sun rays coming at us um, due to climate change. And they felt very strongly about being able to offer that to all workers that need it. So that's one of the things that we're working on. But I think ultimately it's about being in support of uh, different regulations that are coming up, being being loud and being uh, using all of our force as a as a global distribution network to really help people get approval for new filters i think that's the way and the fact that we don't have anything that's global we don't have a global uh, a global approval <clears throat> list at the moment where a brand who's launching in the us and asia and china and uh, australia and europe can launch one formulation. It has to be drastically different today across all of those regions. And we are for sure there to help brands help help them formulate for that uh, challenge right now. But I think to take it a step further, it would be great for us to help support getting those approvals for new filters, or being able to just use something different in a different way. in a different region i think the testing method methods also is a, is a way that we are helping support some of these regulatory challenges because ultimately you have to be able to show that your your product works and not everyone um i don't know some of the brands on the phone but for sure not everyone knows this but depending on how you tested it what method you use to test your spf you get a drastically different result so i think even harmonizing some of the testing methods uh, is a is a way forward to to get you know over the hurdle of some of these challenges and then finally i think we need to just be careful with some of the new formats that are coming out. I also was at Cosmoprof last week walking the show and I saw some great product. And one of the things that intrigued me was uh, some of the wearables that were there. And there was a specific one that launched um, and it gave you all day sun, sun care protection. Now, all day sun care protection, never seen that. That's not regulated. Those type of claims, we're, we're regulating right now creams and, and serums and sprays but what happens when it becomes a wearable and I think the future of of sun care is in expanding beyond just the cosmetic piece and it is looking at tech and what that can do but I think we need to also be reminded that that will be an additional challenge as we move forward.
0: PPE is that something you think about at the sunscreen company
3: Sarah? It's funny. I mean, if I had a wish list, I would always, I would love to have, you know, an international standard. It would make our job so much easier in terms of getting regulatory approval. If you had one body and then you had global well, regulatory approval, it would be a daydream. But I mean, we fell into Canada. Health Canada is our sort of main regulatory body that we always keep our eye on. And then, of course, the FDA because we sell into the US. And I mean, Health Canada, I would say, was probably very close to Australian regulations as well. And there's, they actually distinguish between um, everything. Sunscreen is considered a drug. Uh, they distinguish it in terms of good manufacturing practices very differently depending on the UV filters that you use. So one is a DIN. Uh, for anything that is not zinc oxide and titanium dioxide, that's a natural health product. And it's funny, in seeing those two ways that they regulate, you can kind of see the importance of having balance as you can over-regulate for sunscreens. And I know people think, well, can there ever be too much regulation? Isn't that good in you know in the consumer sort of safety or interest to over-regulate? What could be the harm? And I think sometimes, unfortunately, you know, where it becomes almost like a bureaucratic nightmare if I'm being honest, where just endless, you know, validation and testing methodology, it becomes so cumbersome that it can kind of really restrict innovation. Right. And the incentive for a brand is to make a product like a DIN, um, like so a sunscreen, let's say that has, you know, zinc oxide with encapsulated octinoxate. That was a formula that we had several years ago. But it was so cumbersome to make it yeah, you know, within Canada because of all the regulations the sort of incentive was to make it and then not change it because the restrictions, you know, your validation phase was very intensive testing and then would go to a lower risk testing. So the idea of innovation was really challenging. And I think you see that with these brands who've had these formulas on the market for 15 years who haven't changed them because it's so costly. And in the FDA, you know, we see kind of a stalemate, right? They came out, I think it was in 2020 where they're saying these are the two ingredients that we consider grass so generally recognized as safe and effective zinc oxide and titanium dioxide great and then the other 12 ingredients were up for review saying that they needed to look at things like permeation studies so maximal usage safety trials to show things like permeation um, is not an issue and of course you know there was the subsequent a study in JAMA showing that a lot of these filters were permeating into the body at rates that were much higher than was anticipated. So they're sort of in a stalemate that not much has been done since that update, and we're not really sure the status of what uh, raw material suppliers have submitted in terms of safety da- data, like what filters, you know, like the TenaZorbs, will they ever be introduced into the U.S. Um, and then even newer filters. I once spoke to a tech company who had developed a biotech filter. It was mimicking something that was found, like a protein in the body that had great UVA protection, great safety data. But my question to them was, how would you ever get this approved by the FDA? Like, are you 20 years out before the FDA would ever consider adding this to the monograph? It has to be in the monograph to make it accessible to anyone to use, right? To any brand to use. So there's so much in the way that can kind of get in the way of innovation that overregulation can be burdensome and uh, in a, you know, sort of hassle, but obviously you do need regulations as well. Right. And consolidated regulation, even in terms of like uh, Mallory said, you know, testing methodology would be huge and important and just really help with consumer education as well, but we're not there yet.
0: Is global regulation something that you would be interested in, Allard?
4: Um, certainly with a new uh, novel ingredient, such as the one we have in our, in our high-end face cream, there is uh, some way to go in really declaring, making all the claims we would like to make. And in order to make those claims, we'd have to go through the whole regulatory process. So at the moment, we're being very circumspect about what we claim with it. We know its performance profile from uh, the testing that was done by the, by the inventors, but we can't claim that on the label yet. And
0: finally, Mallory... What would progress look like in 12 months?
1: Well, in one year's time, I'm certainly hoping that we'll see some um, formulation and packaging breakthroughs, like I spoke to earlier, needing that synergy for sustainable sun care products that really help to advance this conversation. You know, there are so many great brands doing great work, creating amazing products. And I just think we just need to keep slowly you know, moving the ball forward to a point, to a tipping point where consumers, you know, are educated enough, are, uh, you know, aware enough of the greenwashing where we've seen some, not, you know, of course, you know, uh, through rose-colored glasses scenario, but we've seen some regulatory Consistency, perhaps even just within a country like the U.S., would be nice. um, Where enough of these factors combine, where sustainable sun care becomes um, becomes the norm. You know, it's you just operating within the beauty industry. It's you know products you know that have plastic packaging and you know non um, environmentally friendly formulas are just becoming so taboo amongst you know especially Gen Z. And yet, we still see these plastic bottles of sunscreen with, um, you know, still harmful ingredients on the market that consumers reach for and use every every day. And so, I think, um, you know, overcoming some of these technical challenges, really um, dealing with the regulatory issues, and finding a way to reach out to consumers that educates them, that arms them with information, but also excites them about sustainable sun care, because some of these products are are great. We love them on beauty and wellness. And I think um, if we can get to a point, if we can get to that point in one year, maybe it'll probably take much more than one year. But if we've made advances towards that point by next year, I think it'll be a great thing.
0: And regarding formulation, Anita, what does progress look like? I think
2: in 12 months, if we are able to have bespoke sun care, so specific personalization tailored to everyone's individual needs, that would be amazing. Um, I also think that because people are very obsessed with tanning and looking tanned, not necessarily the bad for you tanning straight out in the sun, but using self-tanner products. Um, I myself have never needed it, but I hear it can be very tricky to get great results at home. So if we can somehow focus on delivering two-in-one products that are at the same time self-tanning and delivering SPF benefits, I think that'll be a win-win because there are so many people using those types of products. Um, And I think if we can just continue to, to deliver multifunctional beauty that contains SPF, that include the latest and greatest in filters, no matter where we are in the world, and the latest and greatest in textures, I think that will be a step above where we are today.
0: How about at the sunscreen company, Sara?
3: I think if we're talking on a macro level, what progress looks like regulatory update or, you know, new UV filters that probably will not happen on a one year timeline, I mean, the FDA moves slowly, regulatory bodies in general move slowly, you know, even things like ISO, they updated their testing methodology, but that was, I think, it took them 10 years to do that. So nothing kind of moves on a one-year timeline in terms of those higher level up progress updates, but that doesn't mean that individual brands can't deliver on, you know, launches and products within a one-year timeline that show people, show consumers what's possible, right? So at the sunscreen company, you know, we're launching a new sunscreen, 25% zinc, very fluid mineral, has an upcycled ingredient from lamb's wool that's actually cholesterol, it's not lanolin. So it helps with, you know, cholesterol in the skin is a great barrier repair, potentially a vitamin D precursor, even though we don't have the clinicals yet to fully back that up. You know, there's little individual gains that brands can make to show consumers that you can use a safe and effective sunscreen with high UVA protection that you're gonna love every day. And convincing that consumer that that is possible, I think would be a very possible win within 12 year span, or 12, 12 months span, 12 years, there'll be maybe other changes, but 12 months, that would be sort of my best, you know, approximation for what's possible.
0: And for you, Alad, what does progress look like for your brand aesthetics?
4: Progress for me looks like all the sunscreen brands that make false claims, um, being taken to task. Um, whether that's through class action suits or whether that's by uh, regulatory um, standards. I think that would be a, a great thing for the consumer, that uh, they know that when they read something, it's actually true. And uh, other than that, it's, um, yeah, progress for me would be that um, our photomin ingredient from red seaweed, that we can find a way of extracting that at a lower cost.
0: And with that, I would like to thank my guests, Mallory, Anita, Sara and Allard for joining me today and you for listening.